Well, I believe what happened to me is what happened to all veterans in this country. We were recruited at a psychologically malleable age. Then we were wired for war. But at the end of our military service, we were not unwired from war. We were not rewired for society. And then, to making matters worse, we're severed, amputated from our community of comrades, our structure, our mission, our, our purpose, our support. And we're put right back into communities that do not know how to deal with this, do not understand our experience, and we don't know how to adjust. No training. You just heard an excerpt from the one-man show, Cry Havoc, performed and written by actor and U.S. Army veteran, Stefan Wolfert, with an assist from William Shakespeare. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. After years in the military, Stefan Wolford wanted something else, but he had a difficult time transitioning back into civilian life. But he found the theater, and particularly the work of Shakespeare, who peopled so many of his plays with soldiers and veterans who have faced bloody losses. Stefan changed careers, became an actor, and immersed himself in Shakespeare. Years later, he created the one-man show, Cry Havoc, which mixes Stefan's experiences in the military, his return to civilian life, and his observations about both, with pertinent monologues from Shakespeare's plays. And believing that Shakespeare and theater could be as healing for others as it is for him, Stefan has worked for decades with veterans, eventually forming the nonprofit Decrute. Decrute combines classical theater training, mindfulness practice, personal narrative, and the plays of William Shakespeare to teach veterans how to use theater to process and share their experiences so they can finally come home. In the military, we're recruited, but we're never decruited. We have a recruiter that helps prepare, prepare us for every aspect of life in the military, going from civilian life to military life. And in the military, as I talked about on the show, we're, we're wired for war. And it doesn't matter what, what branch, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, or Coast Guard, or what your job is. Everybody learns to fire the rifle at human beings. And for a purpose, I'm not d demonizing the military. They, they're, they're very good at what they do. But essentially, we know from history that part of what what the military has to do to get us to kill, regardless of what our job is, water purification specialist or infantryman, we have to dehumanize the people we're fighting because statistically human beings do not want to kill others. They just won't. In, in that critical moment, it's really difficult to actually get people to kill another human being. So they have to dehumanize and, and as I talk about, wire us for war. And there's weeks and weeks and months of this. But when we get out, none of that's undone. So what I've decided was to stop just talking about it and do what I've been doing for myself for other veterans, which is using theater, specifically Shakespeare and classical actor training, interwoven with some modern psychology techniques to unwire from war, to rewire from, uh, for society, or to decruit fellow veterans and myself. Okay, so let's unpack this a little bit. And let's begin with you. What's your background? You were in the military. I was. I was in the Army. I joined in 1986. I joined at a time when uh, the Navy was jam-packed because Top Gun had come out, but nobody was joining the Army because it had movies like Stripes and Private Benjamin, uh, and it was post-Vietnam. I joined the Army. I was in a medic initially, then an infantry officer right after the first Gulf War, and um, I spent most of my time training during the first Gulf War. I didn't actually deploy on that 
But right after, I was in desert training in Fort Irwin, California, and, and there, was a, there was a chain of events. I had one of my soldiers committed suicide, and then a dear friend of mine was killed right in front of me in a live fire exercise, and I lost it. I mean, now I know that, but at the time, I didn't recognize what was going on with me. I had a, a Vietnam veteran um, who was my platoon sergeant. He helped take care of me. He saw what was going on. I actually technically went AWOL, but they covered for me. I hopped on an Amtrak, and I was traveling around, and in Montana, of all places, I saw Richard III, Shakespeare's Richard III. And there was a veteran on stage, Richard III, expressing, you know, he felt the way I felt about myself, saying that he's, he's deformed, he was really good at the military, and now his military service is over. In his case, the war is over. Um, my case, military service was probably over, and he's asking the audience directly, looking right at me, now what? What do I do? How do I fit in? I, I was really good at this, and I don't fit in here, so what do I do? And this, this play had such a profound impact on me that I ended up leaving the Army and going, going to graduate school for acting at Trinity Rep in uh, Providence, Rhode Island. How long had you been in the military? I'd been in about six years at that point. Now, it took me another year and a half, two years, to fully get out. And had you ever been involved in theater previously? No, no. And had you ever read Shakespeare or loved Shakespeare? No, absolutely not. I grew up on the north side of La Crosse, Wisconsin. It's a very blue-collar town. You know, my father was literally a farmer all the way through high school and up into college. So, no, I didn't grow up with theater. I didn't grow up with, with the arts, really, even in general, not in my community and not, not really in my family. You know, they had to bust their hump just to get by, so... In, in theater and things like that were, were a, a nice hobby, but we didn't really have time for it. And nor did we have the resources. But yeah, I look back now and I realize, oh my God, I was an actor my whole life, <laughs> but, but didn't know it, didn't have the, the support around me to say, no, you're an artist, let's get you into this or into that. So how I wound up in that theater in Montana, I have no idea, but I did. Because that was my next question. Can you remember what made you think, oh, Here's theater. I'm going to walk in. I think it's the same thing that brings now over the years hundreds of veterans into the room with me. When I say I'm offering a decruit course, and let me be very clear, it's treating trauma through Shakespeare. And yet veterans of every era, every age, every background, every military experience end up in that room. And the vast majority will say the same thing that I'm saying now. I have no idea why or how. It just something drew me in there. As far as the play, I, I wish I could give you a really clever and clear story about it, but I was also in, a, in an absolute drunken stupor. I mean, I, I went off the deep end. Uh, you know, I'm sober seven years now, but at the time I had, I was, I had a cooler of beer, Wonder Bread, and peanut butter. <laughs> I was on this train, and that was my nourishment. I stayed pretty drunk 24-7 for a, for a few weeks to try and, I don't know, reboot my system, I guess. I don't, I don't know. What, what I was after, but I ended up in that theater, and it changed my life. What ancient Greeks called a catharsis. You've had some time to think about this, so why do you think Shakespeare spoke so powerfully to you? Well, I write about this fair amount. We're writing a book, my partner in Decruit, Alicia Ali, and, and are writing about exactly this, trying to break it down, if you will. There's, there's so many reasons. He's so perfect. A, Shakespeare was surrounded by veterans, the same people were fighting then as today. The people who were dying and killing and being wounded and wounding others were the working class, the farmers, the tradesmen, what have you. And that's the same today. Seventy percent of all draftees and enlistees 
come from working class families. So we parallel that way. In Shakespeare's day, when he was writing all of these great plays uh, in 1599, James Shapiro, in his book, talks about in England, they were in two wars. They were preparing for the second Spanish Armada. They had already survived one. They were in essentially a Cold War and an on-again, off-again skirmish with Spain. And they were in a full-time nine-year war with Ireland, largely a guerrilla warfare. So the Vietnam veterans get this. The fighters who served in Afghanistan in certain parts of Iraq get this. So Shakespeare was surrounded by veterans, and he was writing our experience so perfectly. It's less about what it's like to be in combat. Sure, you can look at Henry V, you know, once more into the breach and what have you. But what I feel he wrote so right so perfectly is the effects after. I mean, one need only look at Lady Percy's speech uh, to her husband, Hotspur, in, in Henry IV, Part One. He's just returned home from combat, and he's about to leave the next morning, unbeknownst to her. She comes in and starts asking him a series of questions. It's the the monologue that begins, Oh, my good Lord, why are you thus alone? Tell me, sweet Lord, what is that takes from thee thy stomach pleasure and thy golden sleep? Why dost thou bend thine eyes upon the earth and startle so often when thou sitst alone? In thy faint slumbers I by thee have watched and heard thee murmur tales of iron wars Cry, courage, to the field. And thou hast talked of prisoners' ransom and of soldiers slain and all the currents of a heavy fight. Thy spirit within thee hath been so at war and thus hath so bestirred thee in thy sleep that beads of sweat have stood upon thy brow like bubbles in a late disturbed stream. And in thy face strange motions have appeared such as we see when men restrain their breath on some great sudden hest. Oh, what portents are these? That speech so perfectly describes post-traumatic stress disorder 400 years ago that Jonathan Shea, in his book Achilles in Vietnam, takes that speech, and next to each question Lady Percy asks her husband, he puts symptoms out of the diagnostic manual describing post-traumatic stress disorder. Much Ado About Nothing begins with the soldiers returning home from combat. His plays are infused with the veteran experience and the family vet and the community being affected by those veterans returning. Now, you've said that the fact that Shakespeare wrote in iambic pentameter is actually helpful for the veterans who come to decruit. Oh, you should see this. When we work with the veterans, they'll try to share an experience that has them so buttoned up that I'll see them physically shut down. I'll hand them a Shakespeare speech. Not only does the speech, the Shakespeare poetry, provide, as Bessel van der Kolk describes, um, a language for the muck of emotions. Not only that, but he writes it in iambic pentameter that is in perfect human rhythm that helps us regulate our emotions so that we can continue to share them out loud. So with every line of verse, we breathe in, express that line of verse, breathe in for the next one, and keep speaking and breathing, speaking and breathing. It keeps us present in the moment and physically in our bodies, which are the two things that tend to go first when we remember traumatic experiences. We tend to dissociate and leave our body in the present moment. But he forces us to stay in there. I want you to give me a sense of the rhythm of iambic pentameter. Hamlet comes out to the audience, asks a room full of strangers. He looks them dead in the eye and say, to be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer 
the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing end them, to die to sleep. So by breathing in at each new rhythm, to be or not to be, that is the question. Breathing in, we can share this intense human emotion, again, as Bessel talks about, the muck of human emotion so perfectly, but then forced to be breathed in and go to the next series of emotions, the next description of what I'm feeling, thinking, or expressing. And by breathing in and hitting that rhythm, which we already speak in, which is an already in the natural human heartbeat, it, it just comes naturally to the veterans. And I want to add this, that the military uses breath and heartbeat to wire us for war. When we learn to fire the weapon, and again, everyone does this, doesn't matter what your job is, fire weapon at a human silhouette, only part of the breath control is for an accurate shot. The other part is to keep us from thinking about who or what we're shooting. So the, the manual teaches us to breathe in, exhale, keep the breath out, squeeze the trigger between the heartbeats, then take a breath in and acquire the next target. So they use breath as part of the rhythm to firing. We use breath as the part of our rhythm for marching and singing cadence. We use breath as part of our rhythm for nearly everything that we do. So it's a natural segue into Shakespeare to say, all right, let's use breath and rhythm and our heartbeat to try and unpack all this stuff that's going on inside our heads and inside of our bodies. And look, here happens to be some brilliant poetry that expresses exactly what we're going through. Let's speak briefly about Cry Havoc because it's a model for decrut in some ways or its public face. Yeah, if I can put it this way, it serves as the mouthpiece for decrut because it it helped me articulate what I'd been working on since about 96, up to the time I wrote it. I wrote about seven years ago. Okay, describe the play. The play is it's uh, about an hour and a quarter of my journey from that moment of being in Montana, seeing Shakespeare's Richard III and his language perfectly articulating what I was going through. Everything. Shakespeare just somehow got it. And then my journey of not only leaving the army and going to grad school, but Realizing that this work was, was helping me heal, Nolan, my, my friend and brilliant Algonquin artist up in Canada, describes the medicine of theater. It was really working as medicine for me. It wasn't just what we're taught in American theater of, oh, it's therapeutic, but it's not therapy. Not for me. It was. It was more than therapy. It was true medicine. I was healing from this. I was learning skills to help me overcome everything I was going through. So I put that in the show, and I interwove about 13 Shakespeare monologues seamlessly into my own story. So you can think of almost like um, an American musical, the way they, the actors seamlessly go into a, a song, or in theory do, because the song is required to express in a heightened way something that mere words just spoken wouldn't. So I use Shakespeare the same way. Give me an example. So, for example, I had become an officer in the infantry, and, you know, I was in my early 20s. You know, I, I trained solid, and I was, frankly, pretty good in the Army. I was good at what I did. I was convinced that in my first firefight, you know, I was going to be more like what Hollywood portrays, standing up, you know, fearless and bulletproof. And But it wasn't even a big firefight. A single bullet ripped by my body, and I just ducked behind a tree in a very human response and then realized, oh, God, right, no, I got to I gotta do something or my men will die. Um, so in the show, I talk about how I, I'm, I'm lying there, and I realize, oh, yeah, right, uh, shoot back, first squad online, second squad, bond around to the right flank and kill those guys once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more, or close the wall up with our English dead. So I go seamlessly into uh, Henry V's speech of once more into the breach and try to do this throughout because Shakespeare describes in that moment, once more into the breach, 
I know you're afraid, but do this and you can overcome your fear. Summon up the blood, stiffen the sinews, disguise fair nature with hard-favored rage. And then he calls on camaraderie, which the American military does. And you, good yeoman, whose limbs were made in England, show us here the metal of your pasture. Let us swear that you are worth your breeding. So he calls on the very things that we use today in our military to get us to go against our natural human instincts to run from danger and instead run towards danger for our brothers and sisters in arms. Okay, so let's say I walk into a decruit workshop. What am I likely to experience? How does it begin? Uh, It begins and ends with ritual, as always, again, from the Native American theater communities. um, Native Voices in particular taught me this uh, in Los Angeles. Oh, Randy Reinholds. Randy Reinholds, yes. Yeah, yeah. He he was so wonderful to me. uh, I moved to California in large part to be mentored by him to learn because their their mission is clear. We we develop and produce original works by Native Americans for the stage. And I thought, yeah, I want to learn what he does there for veterans. So I can do that for vets, but I want to mostly focus on Shakespeare serving as that tool. Um, but in any case, they begin with a ritual and end with a ritual. So in our case, we begin with a medicine circle where we literally gather up in a circle. That way, everyone's equidistant. And we begin with a check-in. We begin the check-in the first time we let people say whatever they need to to begin that practice that Shakespeare does so brilliantly, which is I think something or feel something and I express it out loud to strangers. We begin there, and with each class, we start refining it down and getting more brief but brilliant, more concise, using only the first person, me, me, and I, not, you know, when you're walking down the street and you get bumped into and you're angry. Nope, it's when I'm bumped into on the street, I get angry. So we begin with that, to let everything that happened in the day be done and for the present moment to be all there is with this group. Once we're dialed in that way and we've been doing mindfulness practices of grounding and breathing and doing that self-expression, that check-in, I tend to do uh, short narrative writing, writing prompts. Uh, We'll tend to do something like, you know, when I joined the military or the landscape of my childhood or the incident that most affects me, things like that. But I don't let them write very long. It's five to ten minutes. It's merely to bring up the experience and the foremost of their their mind and body. All I want is for them to have that moment fresh. Then we leap right into Shakespeare. We grab a monologue or a scene that helps them express exactly what they're going through in a different way and to see what works. Or embody it. What's that? And to embody it, exactly. And Shakespeare demands that of us. So everyone does Shakespeare. Every single class, everyone performs. Everyone speaks Shakespeare out loud. Everyone's on their feet in front of others. And then by the end of class, we close it with a ritual, a reinforcement. We circle up again, and we look each other in the eye. We make sure we're present in this moment. And we carry the faces forward that just carried us for the last two to three hours through some really intense experiences We look at those faces so we can remember these faces to carry us through the next week until we meet again the following week because we do weekly classes. That's the container within which we do decruit. Is a commitment necessary? Do I have to commit to be there for, what is it, seven weeks, six weeks? It's a great question. We, We have several different models. So our weekly classes that we have in Fort Worth and New York City are just weekly classes. Come and go as you please. We profess a shame-free and an apology-free zone. And part of that means you show up when you show up and you leave when you have to leave. Self-care is your new mission. If someone comes in late, we're not, oh, God, you ruined it. Nope. It's, we're so happy to see you. We're so happy you made it. Because the mere act of leaving one's apartment 
for anyone in trauma, not to mention veterans, that mere act can sometimes be so insurmountable that we're in awe that they overcame that to join us in that room. So we acknowledge that and bring that into the room. Whenever they get there is when they get there, whenever they have to leave. We will be there every week so that as they need to, they can come join us. But there, it's not required that you be there every week. When we do the eight-week decruit course, as it were, there's a very specific model. We hope that people meet a minimum of six of the eight classes. But that's really only because we're measuring it. Um, we have scientists who are actually measuring the results of, of our course to see if it's working or not. We are, we are considered an evidence-based treatment uh, protocol. We do EEGs, heart rate variability, and self-disclosure surveys, as well as some other parameters that we're now beginning to add. But for the last seven years, the, the data has been a crucial part of Decruit being legitimized and that theater being welcomed into the rooms worldwide as a supplemental component, at least, in the healing of trauma. Yeah, so that helped us. The, the studies, the seven weeks and people showing up was merely so that we could get the, the data together. But we want you to show up as you're able. Do you find that, that the veterans are receptive to Shakespeare or do they, are they at all resistant to the language? Yeah, they're, they're absolutely resistant, especially early on. I mean, now I'm lucky enough to where there's enough word of mouth going around where people show up. But especially early on, they were resistant. And I even had a guy at, at, one, at one group who, after uh, about seven weeks, finally admitted that he initially showed up to make fun of us and to trash the class and to be disruptive. <laughs> I was in awe that he admitted this. And he said within, a, within about 15 minutes, he found himself getting involved and leaping in and forgot that why he was there. And seven weeks later, he shared, he goes, well, it really works. It does. It, that theater community is so welcoming and embracing. And then that idea that we get to do as Shakespeare says, speak what we feel and not what we ought to say, not to be polite, not to apologize. Like I said, shame-free and apology-free. We don't let people say, I'm sorry. There's no raising of hands. It's your voice. Find your voice. Ground, breathe in, and speak. And then the Shakespeare... They're resistant because I think that Shakespeare's been inflicted on a lot of us at a young age. Oh, yeah. I think that's right. When I hand them a speech, you know, I'll say, here, take this. And they'll say, uh, Hamlet, who, who's that? Or Lady Percy. Wait, I'm playing a woman? No, don't worry about who you're playing. Just, just read the words. And as soon as they start reading the words, we just go line by line. They breathe in, speak it, and say, what word, what sound, what if any of that speaks to you? Not what does it mean? What do you think it means? I don't care. What happens to you when you speak this? We begin there, working our way through a speech. And they, they just innately get it. To see that light bulb go on by the second or third time through where they're just connecting with it and they understand it. They're breathing in before each new line of verse and it's crystal clear and they're personalizing it. They're bringing it right to their own experience. It's as brilliant, if not more, than any trained actor I've ever seen do most of these speeches. It's deeply moving. There are two things that I see as parallel between theater and the military. And the first is the camaraderie that happens in theater. And I'm interested in you talking about that. But the second thing is your basic fear and terror of being up on a stage. I've heard rumors you actually don't die. I'm not, I am not right. convinced myself, <laughs> but that, that seems to be the general wisdom out yeah, there. Yeah, that's what I'm um, told too. <laughs> But I would imagine it's scary for them. Yes, it is. And that being on stage allows them to access that fear but not be taken over by it. It's safe. 
Yeah, you've nailed it. You've nailed two of the pronounced tenets of what of how theater and and the military translate to each other. But let me hit the the terror first because military experience in a particular particular combat or training for combat there is exactly what you described that fear that anticipation so we're taught in the military to some degree how to overcome it i'll give you a quick example if i if i can i went to airborne school and the airborne school is 3 weeks long now a jeep can be airborne and needs no schooling at all because they strap a parachute to it and they push it out the back of an airplane while it's flying because a jeep won't fight the people trying to push it out of the aircraft human beings will so we have to actually come up with rituals and routines to go through that are legitimate but they're also to keep us thinking about something else other than the fact that we're about to leap out of an aircraft <laughs> right so so they go through all this training and a lot of it is breath and that camaraderie that you're talking about to overcome the fear so acting provides these same tools before you go on stage we learn to ground and breathe and how to focus on the moment rather than leave the moment or leave our body for acting we're focused solely on getting into our body and in the moment so we don't worry about what's next or this emotional appointment or the fight coming up later so the same techniques are used to overcome that fear and yes like you said going on stage from uh, I, there was yet another uh, study that came up that that estimates that people uh, in general, human beings are more afraid of public speaking and performing than they are of death. So that gives us an idea of what we're up against, but it also gives us a valuable insight to show that ah, this can be a simulation of life or death. That we can put veterans on stage, their body will automatically go into that fight or flight, that limbic response and feel like it's going to die. but we provide a container of enough security to where they know ultimately that they're not going to and are willing to leap in. So that's that's how they you're very astute that 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 those two things go hand in hand in the military. It's a binary. Go no go. Kill don't kill. Everything's life or death, but in theater, we actually live in the middle of that binary. It's more process oriented than than product oriented. It's I don't know, let's see as Dennis Krosnick at Shakespeare and Company I uh, used to say we're going to go into a room and something will happen. And that's really terrifying to a lot of veterans, right? Cuz they want to know the outcome. They want to they're good soldiers, sailors, airmen and marines. They kn- want to know what the task is and how to com- complete it and get a go. And we're saying, "No. There is no go. There is no no go. Let's see what happens." And that can be more terrifying than or as terrifying as performing in public. And does the camaraderie continue past the workshops? Do friendships and relationships develop? I'm curious. It does in the camaraderie in particular with this group is what I think brings veterans back into the room more than anything else. I think it's the fact that not only does each veteran get something out of it, but they realize very quickly we all begin to realize how important it is that I show up, that I be there for the other um, my brothers and sisters in arms in the room, to be there in that room to support them when they're sharing what they need to share. That camaraderie absolutely bleeds into this. That's the other thing that that this helps to build decrut is a community within a community. And in 5 years, where would you like to see decrut? Ah, my my dream would be a national program. Decrut would be similar to hear me out on the model AA in the regard that a veteran could go to any city, find a meeting that's free and run relatively the same way. That's the part of uh, of AA that I've sort of adopted for decrut. I would love for some level of that in 5 years to where veterans could be in a state and go, "Yeah, yeah. All right, I know where to go." And be getting help 
through the arts and through community. That's where I would like it to be in five years. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed. Stefan, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for giving me your time, and the work you're doing is so significant, and thank you for that, too. Thank you. Thanks for having me on and letting me ramble on the way I do. (laughs) (laughs) No problem at all. That's actor and founder of Decrut, U.S. Army veteran Stefan Wolfert. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. You can subscribe to Artworks wherever you get your podcasts, so please do. And leave us a rating on Apple. It helps people to find us. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.